I'll be going for the Missions Project Fund this year. And so uh, as you go to your offering um, envelopes this Sunday, there will come a missions envelope for the missions offering. And uh, David will give us some updates on some missions projects that we have been in, uh, a part of this year and in the last couple of years and some things in the days ahead. And so if you could just pray about, um, about what you can do and how you can help. Zachariah, and you do have some notes tonight, and the reason I have some notes, it was, it was quicker and easier for me to do it in this way than to put it on PowerPoint, but I also wanted to give you some information to be able to take with you and to study and to read and to follow along, see kind of where we're going. I think the greatest experience that you could have um, in, in, in your life, um, if, you're, if you're thinking about a trip to go to, would be visiting the Holy Land especially going to Jerusalem, and some of you have been, have been there, and uh, we are in contact with Brother Craig Hartman about a trip in February of 2025 that we would be hosting, uh, maybe through our church, and um, so we'll get some information that may come out in the days ahead about that. We'll give you some uh, information about that, and if God would open the door for you to be able to go, I think it would be a great experience uh, Brother Hartman was here this summer. He does mich- um, uh, trips to the Holy Land. And this is not necessarily a, um, an advertisement for a Holy Land trip, even though I think it would be a great thing to be able to do. However, it, it's interesting that Jerusalem plays such an important role in the history and the plan of God. Um, when I stood in Jerusalem for the first time uh, back in 2015, I realized just how small that city was and is to this day. Uh, if you, you could walk from one side of the old city wall to the other side of the old city wall in 15 minutes. Um, and that would incorporate the ancient Jerusalem or, or, or the Roman, uh, even uh, Byzantine area of Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, uh, much of the portion of that city kind of shaped a little different than what the walls are currently today. Um, there have been several additions to that. But in Jesus' day, a very similar walk, 15, 20 minutes from one side to the next. Going back even, it goes smaller as you get into the Old Testament. Uh, during the time of Zechariah, which was about 520 B.C., uh, going back to the time of Solomon and even David, this city has kind of grown it's always been a walled city, going back into the, the Old Testament. Um, but it's interesting that a small city like that would take such prominence in even modern um, politics and wars, that this, there's so much attention to a very small area in the world. And Jerusalem is, is one of those places that, is, that has been a place of struggle, War, political unrest, uh, going all the way back to its very beginning, um, to the very early portions of the Bible. The city of Jerusalem actually appears first in the book of Genesis chapter 14. In a story in chapter 14 verse 18, it's actually called the city of Salem. Some have indicated Jerusalem with the Hebrew word shalom or salam. Uh, which would be the word peace in, in Hebrew, that possibly that this may come from, from that word. And, um, but you remember Abraham is traveling from the northern portion of Israel down back down to his homeland area where he has delivered Lot. 
um, from uh, these kings. And when he comes through this area, he meets the king of Salem, and his name is Melchizedek. And he pays him tithes. And this is the first time that this city would, a uh, small little area on, um, on, a, on a portion of, um, of the mountain range of, of Israel, or at that time um, Canaan, it became a prominent city. Again, it shows up in Genesis chapter 22. Again, Abraham, this time, is taking his son Isaac up a little hill just north of the city of Salem to a little hill called Moriah. And there he would offer his son or attempt to offer his son as a sacrifice on in the area today would be the heart of old city Jerusalem. And in Genesis uh, 22, it was just a, a small area. Joshua 10, Joshua 15, uh, it was a Jebusite city from Jabesh or called Jabesh, J-E-B-U-S. It shows up in Judges 19 in verse 10. So during the conquest of the land of Canaan, it was a Canaanite city of the Jebusites who had this stronghold and it was a fortress. It shows up again in 2 Samuel chapter 5 when David and um, uh, Joab creep through a um, an, a, a, a cistern or an underground spring and conquer the fortress city. And I believe it is um, first Samuel uh, or second Samuel 5, that city for the first time is called in the name Zion. It's mentioned as Zion. The fortress of Zion is mentioned in first Samuel 5. Or 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel 24, it shows up again as now David is king over Israel. He's moved his uh, capital city from Hebron, I believe it is, to the city of Jerusalem, this hill of Zion. And while he's on his palace, he looks up and he desires to build a place for the Lord. And just north of the city walls, there on the hill of Moriah, is a Jebusite threshing floor where this guy would, would thresh um, uh, uh, wheat and um, barley. And that, the Lord pricks his heart to purchase that hill just on the northern side of, uh, of this city of Zion, uh, this Canaanite city that now is, belongs to David where he has moved his capital. And there he, he builds this or he's going to prepare to build a house for the Lord. There it's called in 1 Kings chapter 2 in verse 10. We see that David is buried in the city of David. So it goes from Salem to Jabesh, the fortress of Zion, to become called the city of David where David is buried. And today, today you can visit the tomb of David. It's empty. It's been ransacked, not because he was resurrected, but because... They came in there and stole his bones, all right, and everything else that belonged to it. But you can go to the tomb of David in the city of David, which is a small portion just south of the Temple Mount, uh, which is the old, oldest portion of the city. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, Solomon uh, looks up to that threshing floor that his father built and decides that he's going to there build the temple. And it is on this place that... that um, God sets his name. Uh, turn over in Psalm 78. I need to go 
quickly here. We've got a lot of notes to go through, but I want you to see this in Psalm 78. In the, in the Psalms, there is reference here in Psalm 78 in verse 68. But chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like a high palaces, like the earth which he had established forever. So here is this place. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfold. God chose this city, this Mount Zion. Zion means high place or a place that has been marked out, raised up and exalted. That's what the word in the Hebrew means, Zion. Turn over to Psalm 87 in verse 2. Just a few Psalms over. Psalm 87 in verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all of the cities, all of the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. Selah. Um, turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. The captives, this is a psalm of those who are in captivity in Babylon. Verse 1 says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept and we remembered Zion. But look down in um, uh, in, in verse, as they call for remembrance in verse 6, um, uh, verse 2, the hanging of the harps, verse 3, they were carried away, the captivity required of us, saying, look at the end, sing unto uh, us one of the songs of Zion. So when the, when the captive Jews were sad and downhearted and they wanted to think of something that was happy, they thought of a song that was written about their holy city, Zion. And that encouraged them. That lifted their spirits. They would sing a song of Zion. Psalm 122. Go back a few psalms in Psalm 122. I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. You know that? Verse 2. Our feet shall stand within the gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Whither the tribes go up and the tribes of the Lord into the testimony of Israel. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That they shall prosper that love thee. So there is a prayer calling out. A prayer for Jerusalem. If you were to go to the Wailing Wall, many of you have seen pictures of the Wailing Wall. If you were to go to the Wailing Wall, you would realize if you got close enough, in fact, far enough away, you can already see. There are, there are pieces of note paper that are stuck in the cracks. If you were, and you probably you shouldn't, all right? But if you were to pull out one of those pieces of notes and you were to open it up, if you were to find in the Hebrew, you would find a prayer from Psalm 122, verse 6, where they are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what they do when they go to the Wailing Wall. They are pleading this psalm, praying for peace in Jerusalem. It is a place where God chose to put his name and dwell with his people. It is a lighthouse of human history to be a garden of Eden for the people so they could come and visit Jehovah. It is mentioned more than any place in all of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. No city is mentioned more than Jerusalem. In fact, in prophecy, this city is, is, is the most prominent location mentioned in prophecy. 
It again will be the place of God's dwelling and in His presence. In the book of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the eternal city that comes out of heaven and descends upon the new heavens and the new earth is called the new Jerusalem. So from Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham first meets Melchizedek, called Salem, to to Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the book, the city of Jerusalem is the prominent place. Both Old and New Testament, the center area of the location on earth where God is dwelt and His name is put and His plan and His prophecy fulfilled on this earth is the city of Jerusalem. This city is very important to God and it still is. Why? Why is important to God? Well, Zechariah chapter 2 in this, second, third, this third vision second chapter is going to tell us why. Remember, you've come to the last, second to the last book in the Old Testament. And you've got all these, other, all these other books that have come before. So when we come to uh, Zechariah chapter 2, we've come to the third vision. We're seeing the third vision. Before, just um, overview, and I won't spend too much time on overview, but Zechariah saw in the first vision four horsemen who were patrolling the earth, and, and they came back and told the, the, the leader of the horsemen on the red horse, on the red, uh, red rider, that, that all was quiet and at rest. We know that the red rider was the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord pled with the Lord of hosts and said, Lord, how long will you withhold your mercy? And the Lord responds that he is very angry with anger to the nations of the world who have scattered and persecuted his people. Then he says he is jealous with great jealousy because he loves his people and he is jealous for them. He loves them and that he has not forgotten his holy people and Israel. And he has a plan for them and he is working to bring them back. That's the call at the introduction. You return to me and I will return to you. That's the call in the whole book. That's the theme. So in other words, he will judge the nations of this world for their sin, and then he closes that first vision in verse 16 and 17 of the first chapter with six promises. And one of those promises in those verses was that he would return to Jerusalem with mercies, he will build his house, he will stretch out, he will overflow Jerusalem, and he will bring the prosperity yet to this city, and he will bring comfort to Zion, and again he will choose Jerusalem. Notice in that promise, of those six promises, it all has to do with Jerusalem and God's people. In verse 18, down to the end of the chapter, there's the second vision. He sees four horns and four carpenters, or skilled workmen. These workers were going out to cut off the horns. Who These horns had scattered his people. We saw that God will judge the nations of this world and he will use some other instrument to do this. God is sovereign and he has not lost control even though there are evil people doing evil things. God is reminding his people, I've been in control the whole time and I'll judge them. Don't worry, vengeance is mine. We saw that God, these visions, I want you to understand as these eight visions that are seen throughout these six first chapters of Zechariah, they build upon one another. The first vision and then the next vision and the next vision. And so as they build upon another, they in a lot of ways say the same thing with just new details and new information. 
That's why I told you we spent a lot of time on the first vision. You get the first vision, then you can work with the next few visions, next so many visions, because for the most part, they're saying the same thing just in a little different way, adding a few more details to help us to understand what is going on. These visions repeat, and they give the same hope and the same judgment, the same message. Now, can I ask you a question as I asked myself this week? Why didn't God just tell them right out? Why didn't he just write it down in a historical timeline and, 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 and just make it plain? Why did he use weird visions? Why horns and horsemen and carpenters and angels and measuring lines and myrtle bushes? God, wouldn't it have been just easier if you had just told us? Right up front. Why does prophecy, this is a question I asked this week, why does prophecy often appear in apocalyptic form? Visions, symbols, and metaphors. Well, I, I went to the second question. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Do you remember the disciples came up and said, Lord, why do you talk in this secret language? Why are you telling us about servants and, and laborers and wheats and tares? And, and why don't you just tell us what, what you mean? Why are you speaking in these, these weird fashions, okay? Why are you speaking in these parables? And Jesus told his disciples the answer. And I believe this is the same answer of why, why the scripture in prophetic fashion is written in symbols and metaphors and, uh, and visions in such a way. It's because Jesus said this. To conceal to those who are hard, who don't have ears to hear and hearts to listen. It just makes them mad. But for those who have ears to hear and hearts to listen, it causes them to dig in deeper and search the scripture and know God. Those who want to believe. And Jesus told that as one of the reasons. I believe it's often prophecy is dealing with things that are future and what the original men saw this, heard and saw the meanings clearly. But just think about this with John as he describes seeing the future in the book of Revelation. He was having a tough time describing what he was seeing. I mean, he was seeing the future. I mean, it's post 2023. And, and so how was he going to describe what he is seeing in the future? What he's seeing going on on earth? He, he describes it and uses apocalyptic language that they could understand in the first century to describe what he was seeing. It was tough. So he described it in such a fashion. So he explained it in terms that he knew in apocalyptic metaphors and symbols was the best way he explained it. Now look down at the quote that I gave you by Michael Vlock. God sometimes uses symbols and vivid imagery to convey truths. In studying kingdom, that would be future passages, we will encounter dragons, horns, statues, and frightful beasts. This often seen in Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, where we are, and Revelation. The symbols in these books were given to be understood and point to literal meanings. Some are explained and others are not. Some are harder to decipher than others. Nevertheless, notice this point, behind each symbol is a specific meaning. 
And we should apply sound interpretation principles to all Bible passages, including the ones with symbols. You know, we can learn from the first prophetic symbol in the Bible. Just make it plain. Turn over to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. I know this is a long introduction, but as I'm also trying to teach you as we're going through very difficult stuff, okay? It's not as difficult maybe as we make it out to be. Genesis 37 is the very first place in the Bible where God speaks in a dream, a vision in symbolic fashion. And it is the story of Joseph. Joseph sees a dream, and he sees a dream in, in verse... Um, Verse 9, he dreamed yet another dream and told his brethren. Um, yeah, was, he, he dreamed the first one. He had the sheaves that were there. But I just want to use this one as an example. When he dreamed this dream. And he saw the sun and the moon and he saw 11 stars. And the 11 stars and the sun and moon made obeisance to me. All right. There, there was this vision. And he saw the sun, the moon, and these 11 stars. Okay. What is the interpretation? He told the brothers. He told his dad. He told his mother. What was the issue? Well the interpretation was, was plain. They clearly understood. The sun was Jacob. The moon was Rachel. And the 11 stars were his brothers. And he was raised up. And the stars and the sun and the moon bowed down before him. He was seeing the future in a vision in symbols. And the brothers clearly understood what the vision stood for because they got mad at him. Because the, the vision was saying that one day Joseph would be lifted up and everybody in his family would bow down before him. Okay, just, just simple. It's not as hot, not hard. All right? There's another place in the Bible where visions kind of, where, where an interpretation be difficult in the book of Daniel chapter 2. You can turn over there. You can see it. This is Daniel where he sees the statue. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar sees the dream. He has this dream. He's got this golden statue. Uh, actually, this statue that is made of different material. And the head is a head of gold. Daniel gives us the interpretation of the head of gold. And then he lays down what God is telling him over the future prophecy of the kingdoms of the future. That is to come from Daniel's standpoint. And Daniel told him directly in chapter 2, the head of gold on this statue is you and your kingdom, Babylon. A normal grammatical interpretation of the rest of the vision would plainly imply that if the head of gold was equal to a literal Babylonian kingdom with a literal king, Nebuchadnezzar, then the other parts of the body of the statue would also represent a literal kingdom with literal kings. You see, you cannot pick one part of the dream one way and interpret it and the other part of the dream and spiritualize it. You have to be consistent. My point is there is no need to look for secretive or cryptic or spiritualized meanings in visions or apocalyptic literature. I do not believe there are hidden meanings in the text. There's no secret codes. 
They were there for the original readers to understand exactly as it was written. I don't think the symbols and visions and dreams were as confusing and weird in their day as it is in 2023. With culture change, language change, and can I say 2,000 years of misinterpretation, I personally believe that Augustine and the church post-400 A.D. did more damage to interpreting Scripture than any other generation. They opened the door, I say men like Augustine and those who followed him, opened the door to so much confusion by accepting non-literal and inconsistent approaches to interpreting Scripture. They could eventually make the Bible say whatever they wanted it to say. Now when we come to these passages, we just take what is here and be consistent with it. From one vision to the next. So look down at the text here. And this is why I gave you the notes so that you can see it and we can kind of fly through it. I lifted up my eyes. This is the third vision. And again, and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Okay, this is the marker that the fact that he's seeing a new vision. Same word that is used in verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 8 and chapter 1 and verse 18 when he lifted up his eyes. What does he see? He sees a man who has a measuring line. Think of a surveyor. That's why I've titled it in this fashion. He sees a surveyor. Think of a man who is going to measure a building. He's got a tape measure. Or maybe the thing that's got the wheel on it that you, you, know, you, you roll around or you're going to roll around and take a measurement of, of the property. This is what this guy's doing. In verse 2, he actually says, I said, where are you going? Right? And, and he said unto me, I'm going out to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth and thereof and what is the length. I'm going to measure the city of Jerusalem. We have to ask ourselves a question. At what point is he measuring the city of Jerusalem? Right? Well, the rest of the vision is going to help us out. I believe from this point on, he is seeing a, a future Jerusalem. With the measurements that he's getting ready. Not the current Jerusalem that uh, Zechariah is living in. This is prophetic. He's seeing a future Jerusalem. And he's seeing this man who is going out with his measuring tape. And he's going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. Have you ever seen a land surveyor? All right, I see them all the time going back around here in Huntsville. They're everywhere. They've got the tripods and they've got the, again, the other guy across and they've got their vest and they're, they're measuring out and they're marking and putting stakes out and all this other stuff. And this is what this guy is seeing. All right? this, is, this is what he's seeing, this guy who's walking around Jerusalem measuring it. All right? uh, this is a similar vision. If you have any notes in your Bible, this is a similar vision to what Ezekiel would see in Ezekiel chapter 40, 41, and 42. Ezekiel will see a man with a measuring line who will go through Jerusalem and he will measure everything. In fact, Ezekiel sees his vision goes on for three or four chapters. And he will go down to even measuring the rooms in the temple. He starts out with the city, goes smaller, smaller, smaller. It's a much detailed vision. But some have indicated that this is potentially the same person and the same type of vision. You can't be dogmatic about that. But it is very similar if you want to do some extra study on that. Verse 3, he says here, And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth. There's Mr. Interpreter Angel. He's the narrative of all these visions. We see him, he comes up a lot. He says, this interpreter angel went forth, and, and as he's going forth, 
he meets another angel that went out to meet him. Okay, so now there's another angel that comes out and intersects these two angels, and right there in the middle of the football field, they have a huddle. All right, all right. Maybe that's too many visions and illusions and metaphors. All right, so these two angels are having a little powwow. All right, one's met the other one out in the middle, and Zachariah's left there all alone. He's asked the question, "What is it? Where are you going? What's this going to be? What is this measurement that's taking place?" Look at verse four, and he said unto him, "Run." Speak to this young man, that's Zechariah, go back, speak to Zechariah, and say this. Jerusalem shall be, notice the tense of the verb, it is future, shall be inhabited just like or as towns that are without walls for the multitude of men. There will be so many men and so many cows, cattle, livestock, herds in this city. That it won't need any walls. Jerusalem will one day be a city that doesn't have any walls. And it will be filled with people and filled with animals. Now first of all, a city with no walls in the ancient world meant what? It meant that it was a city that was unprotected. Either the city is vulnerable to attack for the enemy... Or there is no need for walls because there are no more enemies. Jerusalem has always, even to this day, well, 4,000 years, has always existed other than a small portion of when the walls were destroyed for 70 plus years with walls. It has walls today. Had walls in Jesus' day. Had walls in Solomon's day. Had walls in David's day. Had walls in Joshua's day. Had a wall in Abraham's day. He's always had walls. So it said how they don't have walls. If an ancient city in the ancient world had no walls, then that meant the city was either foolish or safe. There's no enemies. This speaks, I believe, according to the next verse, that Jerusalem will not need physical walls because they have nothing to be afraid of. Well, why do they have nothing to be afraid of? I'm glad you asked the question. We're going to look at the next verse. However, I want you to think about this second. The angel says that the city doesn't have walls because there is so much room and so many people. I mean, there are so many people and animals in this city that they had to get rid of the walls because they were overflowing with so many people. This is the same similar word that is used in verse 17 of chapter 1 when he said that the city will prosper. It will overflow. In other words, there will be so many people living in the city and so many animals prospering that they have to take the walls down and spread out over all the area. In fact, in Zechariah's days, the walls had been, were torn down and they needed to build walls, which is why God would send Nehemiah all the way from Persia to build the wall around the city. Interesting that there will be animals in this new Jerusalem, in this Jerusalem in the future. So many animals. God loves animals that even in his future city of Jerusalem, it will include a lot of animals. If you want to do a study right there, just do some study in Ezekiel and Isaiah on the time animals are mentioned in the future kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. Here's the question here that's answered uh, for us about what the, why there's no walls. For I, saith the Lord, will be her wall. 
a wall of fire around her and will be the glory in the midst of her. Here's the Lord's declaration. Notice this is the first time in this vision that God says, I will. He will say it five times in this chapter. Uh, Five times in this vision with two additions. He says it twice in verse 5. I will be. I will be. Verse 6, he says, I have spread. I've got them underlined here in my Bible. Verse 9, he says, I will shake. Verse 10, he says, I come and I will dwell. And in verse 11, he says again, I will dwell. So God is talking about this city and he uses this term, I will, I come, I spread, or I have spread. What does he say here? I will be her, to her a wall of fire. Now, if you, were, if you were a Jewish reader and you were familiar with the Old Testament and you got to the book of Zechariah and Zechariah opens up and he reads this statement. Every Jewish reader talking about Jehovah being a wall of fire would have immediately went way back in the book of Exodus. And even Psalm 46 in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 34 and verse 7, I read you last, last week, the angel of the Lord encamps round about. The story, I'm just thinking of Gehazi and Elijah, I believe it is, who, who he's scared because of all the armies that are camped around him. And he says, Yo, open your, Lord, will you please open his eyes? And he looks up and all around him is these chariots of fire and these heavenly hosts that are surrounding, that are surrounding him. In Exodus 13 and verse 21, the Bible says this, of the Lord who went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them in the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And in the next chapter, in chapter 14 and verse 19, when the Egyptians are coming down, barreling down upon the Israelites and they're encamped before the, um, the Red Sea, the Bible says, and the angel of God went before the camp of Israel and stood between them and the Egyptians. All right? So when God says that he will be a wall of fire about them, every Jewish person lifted up in their spirit and remember what God did for them in the book of Exodus. That he protected them and he will surround them. They had nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because there's a cloud out there in the daytime and there's a pillar of fire out there in the nighttime and we can look around and we can see the chariots of God. He is our wall. What a what an encouraging thing for a city that doesn't have any walls. And Zechariah is in the process of encouraging a group of people to Keep it up. God, God's in control. I will be the glory in the midst of them. This clearly pointed towards Psalm 46 and verse 5. When his glory will be upon, uh, before them. Exodus 40 and verse 35. When uh, the glory of God came and filled the tabernacle and moved in. And the Bible said the priest couldn't even see what they were doing. Because God's glory had moved into the tabernacle. The same thing that happened to Solomon when he prayed and asked the Lord to fill the temple with his name and all of a sudden that cloud came in and pushed its way through and, and came and dwelt there on the holy of holies and that glory that was, that was there remember in Ezekiel chapter 42 
When Ezekiel is seeing the city of Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem because he watches that glory cloud lift up and leave. And I'm reminded as I read my devotions not too long ago when the Ark of the Covenant was taken away and Phineas and Hophni were killed. I think it was Phineas's wife who bore a son named Ichabob. God's glory has left. And here God is giving a promise to Israel. I am coming back. My glory will be in the midst of her. And I'll be a wall of fire around her. Look at verse 6. He says, ho, ho, or come forth. Or one translation says, listen, listen. Come and flee. Flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, saith the Lord. Right, verse 6, where he says, I have spread you. I'm the one that separated you and dispersed you throughout all the nations. You say, wait, I thought the nations, the Gentile nations, scattered God's people. Now, he's saying God scattered his people. Which one is it? Yes. Listen, behind every action that happens in history, God is in control. And when he disciplined his people, he brought Nebuchadnezzar in to do that. He brought Sennacherib in to do that. He brought uh, Alexander the Great in to do that. He brought Titus in to do that. But who did it? Was it them? No, it was God. God was in control. He even calls Cyrus his servant and Nebuchadnezzar his instrument of his hand to do that. So God was in control. So notice that in these verses, so this vision moves from seeing the future in verses 1 to 5 to calling those in the present to listen, run, and come. So the first five verses, he's looking to the future of a guy who's measuring the city, given a promise. Then in these few verses, he goes back and he says, all right, now what you need to do in light of that vision that you just saw, listen, listen, ho, ho, flee, and run. What is he calling for? Well, verse 7, he says here, deliver thyself, or you can put the word um, escape, O Zion that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. O Zion, those of you who dwell in Babylon, flee, run. Hey, run where? He's calling them as an invitation to return. I put this in your notes. This is a call for all those who had not, who were not involved or had not been convinced that what was happening in Jerusalem under Haggai and Zechariah was worth being a part of. You know, there, there was a whole group of people, I think 50,000 Jews that returned after Cyrus's degree, decree, who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild his house. There were thousands upon thousands of Jews that were comfortable in their home back in Babylon living off the world. And God is saying, you need to go home because I've got promises to fulfill in Jerusalem. You need to be a part of what's, what's going on. Nehemiah felt that tug when he was drinking, you know, not drinking, but he was the cupbearer for the king. And do you remember as he's sipping on the cup, making sure nobody's poisoning the king, the king looks over and says, why are you so sad? He's one of the Jews that was left in Persia, in Babylon. He says, my heart aches as my people back in Jerusalem are there 
and there's no wall. He says, why didn't you say something? Here, here's your decree. Go back. And Nehemiah gathers a group and goes back. He's listening to the invitation. That's going to happen only in a few decades from this invitation and this call to go back. Leave. Go back. Look at the next verse in verse 8. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after the glory or in pursuit of glory, hath he sent me unto the nations who spoiled you, for you have touched Uh, He said, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, this is an interesting verse. The Lord of hosts is declaring. This is what he is going for. This is why he does whatever he does. He does it for his glory. That word after means to pursue, to go after glory. This is what God is doing. God wants glory for himself. And his actions in history are in pursuit of exalting himself and his glory. That's what he does. So he has sent me into the nations who have plundered you or spoiled you. And interesting, he says here, for anybody that touches you, touches the apple of my eye. I like what one commentator indicated to the fact that we often think of the apple as our eyes, like our little son who's so you know, cute and then the little daughter and he's just the apple of mine, we're precious. Well, actually, this terminology is used in the Hebrew meaning to poke someone in the eye. Okay, that's not as, you know, as, as, as precious as you would think. However, the only place in the human body that is most sensitive and exposed is your eyeball. And God made your eyes surrounded by some very strong bones and he put eyelashes and eyebrows and an eyelid that's there and he also gave you some flinching mechanisms and also some hands that you can put up. Have you ever been poked in the eye? Well, God is saying this. Anybody that messes with my people is poking me in the eye. You better be careful. Now, this is interesting because you say, well, is this, is this a promise that is continually in effect today? I believe so. That's why the nation of Israel, whoever is behind nation of Israel, is important to God. Because you mess, there are nations that are surrounding that little bitty area in the Middle East who are poking God's eye. And Zechariah says, I'm watching. And when you do that, That irritates me. I get angry with great anger because I am jealous of great jealousy. This is my people. And I've got promises that I'm yet fulfilled. So in this passage, there's a seriousness to God. Look in verse 9. We've got to close here. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be spoiled for their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts, he's the one that sent me. Now, when it says the spoil of their servants, this basically means God is going to raise his hand. When he says to shake his hand, basically the idea is you're getting ready to get swapped. And you're going to get swapped so much so that you're not even going to be left. Your servants are going to come in and take your bed and take your food and take your pottage. Okay? And that's why I asked the question. When God raises his hand, which side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side that he's getting ready to wallop? Or do you want to be behind him? Do you want to be behind him and on his side? So this call to return, you return to me. 
And I will return to you. Because in the end, you don't want to be caught off on the wrong side. Because when I shake and I raise my hand, because you're poking me in the eye, okay, you get this vision. God's angry and he's moving in this passage. So you see that in, in the passage here. And then um, let, me just, let me just show you verse 10 because it ends on a good note. The last four verses, and we can come back to this later. But in verse 10, he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come. Lo, I will dwell in the midst of thee. Notice for the rest of the chapter, we turn back to future tense verbs. So we went from future in the first five verses to a few verses that God is now talking to the nation, to, to, to the Israelites who are in Babylon, come back, be a part of, get on God's side of his plan. Then in verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, he moves back into the future. He's going to see what he will do, and he gives promises here. And this is worth singing about. Why? Because God is coming. I like what the last portion of the verse, and I can end with this. Look at verse 13. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. One translation says, he's rousing. Okay. You just woke up the mama bear. And the way this is read in this verse in verse 13 it is at God is getting up off his chair to his feet and he is moving in protection of his people. How about you being a rinky-dink group of people who are building a little temple in Jerusalem in 520 and you feel like no one cares what you're doing. And you look around and you see a run-down, broken-down city in the walls and then all of a sudden Zechariah comes on with a vision that says... Hey, God's in heaven and somebody's been poking his eye and he's got his hand raised and he's standing up. We better return to him because he's returning to us and we want to be on the right side, all right? So this, this, this is interesting for the nation of Israel and this has future implications, but this is a reminder to us as well as his people and we'll get to that next, next time we come around as God's people. Which side are you on? Are you part of his plan? And, and we've got to be very careful. God is jealous for what he loves. And he stirs with anger for that which he hates. And he will not overlook sin. And, um, and God is moving. Interesting how he pictures here. From Zechariah's time, he sees God kind of edging off of his seat. I mean, it's been over 2,000 something years. One day, um, a thousand years is like one day to God. He's moving. He's in the process. His timetable's all out, and he's watching it come, and he's in the process. He's already sent his son. He's, sending, he's getting ready to send his son, and it could be at any moment that he would move. And this is encouraging to a people to say, go get him, God. Go get them. I've repented. I'm on the right side. I, I fear your name. And I'm in part of the, the plan of what you're doing. God, you, you love us and you care for us. Father, I pray as we close tonight. Uh, Lord, a, a lot of a material that we're kind of looking through here. But thank you that um, you give encouragement. Even through 
through these visions that were intended to bring, be kind words and comforting words, as you said in chapter 1, to remind Israel that you love them and you care for them and you're watching out. And yes, they right now are blinded and have rejected your son just like they did in, in the time of the captivity, how they were cast out and they rejected your promises. But you've not forgotten your covenants. You've not forgotten your promise. Your, your kingdom is still in the future and it is still coming. And we need to be on the right side. And we need to call forth people to come and, and, and get, get on board with God's plan um, so that we are behind his mercies and his grace and covered in the tenderness of a shepherd and not on the other side where his wrath and anger will come upon the nations of this world. Woe to those who align themselves against the Almighty. Lord, would we be careful. Thank you that you are an, an, um, a God of refuge and strength and you surround us with your presence and your, your power and you are always in control no matter what we face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you. You are dismissed.